Hi and welcome to Tell Our Daughters Climate podcast. Focusing on developing countries, we hope to cover a range of issues relating to climate change, development, conservation and many more. Today's guest is Niall O'Connor, who is the Asia Director of Stockholm Environment Institute in Bangkok, Thailand. Niall holds a BSc and MSc in Forestry, both from University College Dublin and an MSc in Biodiversity Conservation from Imperial College London. He comes to SCR from WWF, where he served in leadership positions since 2008 and as Regional Director for Eastern and Southern Africa since 2011. Previously, he served as Country Director in Gambia and Senegal for Concern Universal, a UK-based international NGO. I'm Kiti Manjan and I'll be your host for today. Hi, Niall. Welcome to the show. I'm going to start by asking you this. Tell us how you got started on your environmental journey. Perhaps talking to us about some defining moments. Okay, well, it's it's a pleasure to be here. I suppose it's been a long journey, so <laughs> given the age I'm at at the moment. But I started in conservation many years ago. I started off being a forester um, back in Ireland. And I had the opportunity at one stage to travel to Kenya to look at forestry in the highlands of Kenya as a student. And I, I began to see that forestry wasn't like the traditional commercial forestry that we had back home in Ireland at the time, that there was a lot of variations to how you could actually work with forestry. And I could see that people living with agricultural land and forest land together. So I started learning more about agroforestry. Um, and I got kind of keen into the idea of how you integrate different sectors in society with agriculture, forestry together, and to see how they could benefit each other. So I began to explore that a bit more. And I ended up doing studies in agroforestry and then led a research institute in West Africa, uh, the National Agricultural Research Institute in the Gambia. But even there, as you start to implement projects, you can begin to see the impacts of climate change. You could see the sea level rise was causing um, salt intrusion into a lot of the rice fields. And you begin to see the impacts that this is having on people's livelihoods. And I kind of got very excited about the fact that there are ways that we can mitigate about that. and We could learn more to see how we could adapt, I suppose, to these conditions. And I, I kept on exploring that and I ended up going into conservation work to look at how we could go beyond just livelihoods, to look at how we could conserve the landscapes that we have and the species that we have within them so that they can become more resilient in the long term. And it, it was quite startling, I suppose. Some of the, you know, when I was working in Madagascar, you could see that species that we were working with, one degree increase in, in, in temperature had massive impacts on these species mm-hmm. and impacts on their ranges, impacts on their survivability, on their Uh, reproduction and and all of this is going to impact on the value that we have from the environment the value that people have from the resources that we get from the environment so i kept on exploring more and more into how we could find solutions so i suppose that led to finally and through many years with wwf into now the stockholm environment institute where we have a chance to to really explore these issues and to find through kind of evidence-based science solutions that we can offer to policymakers and to communities to adapt, to work with the environment and to, I suppose, support and protect themselves. So it's, it's been a, a long but very, very interesting journey so far. Thank you for that. And now can you tell us more about SEI Asia? What is the nature of your organization and what kind of impacts do you have? Okay, SEI is a global research to policy think tank. Um, Fortunately, we've been rated one of the best in the world at this for the last number of years, which is a, a nice accolade, but um, challenging work all the same. So what we try and do within the Stockholm Environment Institute is to see how using evidence-based science, we can bridge the kind of the science, policy, and now best practice approach to try and make sure that, 
and we're creating a more sustainable, more prosperous future for all. So we would try and make sure that we work, well, I suppose, with a number of stakeholders to make sure that they're part of the process. So we're very much a solutions-oriented and co-production approach to developing the science, to developing the links to policy. So our main kind of focus areas uh, that we want to have an impact on as an institute are around reduced climate risk. How can we bring about that? How do we bring about sustainable resource use and improve resilient ecosystems so that people have access to and use of in the future? And how do we improve human health and well-being and, and also environmental health in all of that? So to do that, we approach it in three different ways. One is trying to change the agenda. What are people talking about? Um, how can we influence them to set the right agendas at national level, at regional level, so that we're talking about the right things and therefore trying to make an impact uh, when it comes to the environment? How do we help build capacity of stakeholders that we work with, of communities, of private sector, of government representatives, of the key decision makers, those people who have the, I suppose, through the, the work that they do, the ability to influence. So we want to work with these decision makers to increase their understandings around climate issues, environmental issues, and how they can use that in their work to make decisions. And then the final area of that is really improving those decision makers' outcomes. So working with policy decision makers to give them the evidence they need to make the next steps. So the office here in Asia, we established here in Asia about, I think, 15 to 20 years ago, we on and off. It's been a, a slow growth in the region. But at the moment, we've got a team of over 40 researchers working here on a whole host of different areas we want to work, I suppose, many institutions tend to have centralised offices, but we wanted to have offices in the region that really gain a better understanding of the local context, works with local communities. And we're not just flying in and flying out with solutions, but we're actually working with the communities on the ground, with the decision makers, with the private sector, with academia in the region to try and collectively bring about change to that. So we're very much focused around all of the SDGs as well. So we cover, I think, most SDGs are embedded in our programs in one way or another. But we also have what we call global initiatives, which are big programs that we tend to work on, not just in one region, but across the region to try and find solutions uh, to some key areas that we, 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 as an institute, see. And for example, like we're looking at targeting um, carbon lock-in. What's driving us to keep on financing into fossil fuels? How can we change that process? Because we know we need to move away from fossil fuels. We need to look at more renewable energy. So what are the different solutions different parts of the world can give to that? And how do we integrate that into decision-making moving forward? We're looking at city health and well-being. Given the, I suppose, the, the rapid growth of, of urban areas and the, the migration of people into urban areas, there is physiological health issues there. There are health issues around air pollution, around you know, just the stress of living in cities, or around heat islands and so forth. How do we look at these as broader issues to, to support um, sustainable transitions into cities? How do we get better green spaces? How do we get better clean air? How do we work with communities to have more nature in cities? And, and you know, in the likes of Bangkok here, for example, where we have a lot of flooding, how could nature-based solutions support long-term city sustainability? So, But there are a number of different programs we have there. And, and one of the key ones that I'd like to highlight is also our work on gender equality, social equity and poverty reduction, or GSEP as we call it. I think it, it's critical that we... You know, work across all of our research areas, integrating gender where we can and making sure that we are listening to the impacts that various 
sectors in society have as a result of environmental degradation and making sure that we're listening to those who are most vulnerable and most marginalized and integrating this into decision making. It's important that we have a more inclusive approach to trying to find solutions. I think that has been lacking in many ways in the past. So kind of a brief overview of, of the Asia Centre. These are some of the key areas we want to work on. We're beginning to assess new areas of research in water resource management that covers all of the Mekong. I think in their SummerNet programme, we can talk about that. We're looking at areas around climate change, adaptation, mitigation, but also looking at the impacts of climate, such as disasters. And we have a large program looking at disaster risk reduction approaches, linking again with communities through the governments to find out what are the best ways to build back better? What are the most important ways to mitigate some of these environmental disasters, which sadly in, in the Asia region are increasing exponentially? And we need to you know, look at how climate is going to impact on people and communities. So that's kind of a, a brief overview of the work in SEI in Asia. But there's there's a lot that we're doing and there's a lot of new areas that we want to try and explore, including access to climate finance, more into biodiversity and ecosystem services. How do we sustain them? ecological economics and how do we look at the, the value of what we do in terms of environmental and development research to the economy and how do we show that there are better ways of moving forward. So all quite interesting and quite an active centre that we have here at the moment. All of it sounds quite amazing and very, very important, I think, in terms of setting agenda, in terms of talking to decision makers, policy makers, especially. In that context, then, what kind of challenges do you face when dealing with the politics of it, or when dealing with local communities, for example. And over the last four years, has the nature of these challenges changed? I think that we have many, many challenges, unfortunately. <laughs> right. And not just working with policymakers or communities. I think if you're just looking at the whole scale of the region itself and the impact that, the, I suppose, a growing economy and growing wealth within the region is rapidly increasing consumption. Mm-hmm. And production and consumption is not sustainable here. So we're seeing massive, unsustainable use of natural resources uh, throughout the region. And this is a considerable challenge for everybody. So these are key areas that we need to think about. We've also got a very diverse political region as well. And, and there are maybe some challenges in that. There are some that are very supportive of environment and pushing environment. There are some that have different approaches. But at the moment, it's not all working together to try and solve problems. So um, thinking within boundaries or in borders, I should say, so that you know, you'll know you solve your problems in this country, but you may have a negative impact on another country and you're not working as collectively as, as you could. But I think there are inroads in that now and people are beginning to see the need to try and work together. And that's also interesting. One key area, though, I think we talk about communities and civil society in, in many countries, they're getting less and less space to speak up. They're maybe not being as open and in some societies to integrate communities and their decisions and their needs. And I think we have to really work with that to make sure that whatever research we're doing is inclusive. Um, we're looking at the gender issues. We're looking at the LGBT communities. We're looking at the disenfranchised, the disability. They should all be part of the process to solve you know, the issues that they face. It can't be solved from one perspective only. So we need to make sure that this inclusiveness is encouraged through our research, but also through the connections we have with policy decision makers that we encourage them to also open and to listen to more people. But I think also what we've seen here and sadly around the world is regardless of maybe the COVID issue and the climate change issues, you know, people don't always listen to the science and we need to make sure that we continue to, to support people's understanding of science and to make science accessible to people. 
and um, we don't want to write it in such language that people don't understand the impact and therefore can easily afford to neglect it. We want to make sure that it's the science is solutions oriented, written in the language that the policy decision makers, the communities can fully understand so that they actually embrace it and take it on board. So trying to make sure that we continue to shift an understanding around the impacts of science and what science can offer to decision makers and to to solutions oriented approaches is going to be critical. And I think that's going to be also important when you're working with the private sector because it's a production haven here in Southeast Asia. There are so many people involved in production that we need to work with them to look at sustainable approaches to that. And we need to make sure that they take on board the science as well. So, for example, we're working with Global Initiative and the Responsible Business Forum to integrate a science to business leaders who are already looking at the sustainability issue and looking at how their work can support the SDGs. And we want to make sure that we continue to grow. So if we can get the business community behind this transition to sustainability, they will indeed help bring about sustainability. And I think that's they're all important. Obviously, COVID has thrown a spanner in the works um, in the region here because I suppose a lot of the resources now are being pushed into protect countries with from outbreaks of COVID and to support people. But that has had a big impact on maybe the focus on, for example, plastic waste. You know, a lot of positive work over the last two, three years to try and tackle such issues as plastic waste have now kind of gone to the wayside as another crisis has to be dealt with. And we've got to make sure that we can get people back on track and that one challenge doesn't offset other ongoing challenges, which are going to cause more problems for us in the long term. And that itself is climate change. So we have got to try and figure out ways to work with these communities, work with governments to find better approaches moving forward and to build back better as the expression goes so that the lessons learned from COVID are in response are taken into what is going to be a bigger issue around climate and climate response. So a number of challenges, but optimistic in the same time that people are beginning to see the need for better knowledge around these issues and better integration of that knowledge into decision making. And we want to try and continue doing that as we move forward. I like this point that you made about one challenge not offsetting the other ones. I think that's very, very important. So thank you for that. I want to talk about SEI's program in that sense. It's called the Sustainable Mekong Regional Network. Can you tell us more about that, please? Okay, yes. Uh, SummerNet, as it's known, it's a program that we've been running now since 2005, and thanks to the support of Swedish funding through CEDA. It's, as you say, a regional research network, and the idea is to bring about sustainable development in the Mekong region through strengthening knowledge-based policy processes, as it were. So again, research to policy. At the moment, we have diverse memberships. I think we have over 300 members in the network, and they come from research side, from policy, government side, from private sector, and from civil society, all trying to work together and supporting research, research that can look at a variety of different environmental issues over the last 15 years. At the moment, under the current phase of SummerNet, we are focusing on uh, three kind of key research areas that's looking at water insecurity in the Mekong. I think water is going to be an issue in the future and with current kind of changing rainfall patterns, current climate change and temperature, with current utilisation of water resources, you know, rivers are being heavily impacted and therefore access to water has been heavily impacted. So this SummerNet research is going to look around water access, water rights and allocations, particularly in times of scarcity, so that we make sure that everybody has access to water in a fair and equitable way. 
particularly the more marginalised and vulnerable communities as well. We want to also look at governance and management of flood disaster risk because it's increasing in the region and it has huge impacts in many, many ways. So how do we actually support that? And then look at this transboundary interaction again of water because most rivers in this region are not just within one country. They cover two, three, or in Mekong itself, six countries. So how do we bring about coordinated approaches to solving the water issues? How do we work to make sure that maybe the, the solutions that we have in one country are not issues in another country or the fact that we might build a dam in one country could have a major issue downstream in another country. So we'll try and continue those three researchers to make sure that we can produce the knowledge um, that is necessary. And using that knowledge, we can maybe try and change the attitudes of the key decision makers towards the impacts that they may be making. And then hopefully through that, we can alter their practices in the long term. And that's kind of the focus of the program. How do we change knowledge, attitudes and practice of the key partners, of the key stakeholders in the program? So this program, as I said, it has been going on for um, 15 plus years. We look forward to continuing to work on that for a number of years to come. But by producing this knowledge and producing this science, can we make those decision makers make the right decisions moving forward? That's always a challenge. But um, I think we'd have to just say that Dr. Chayanas, who is our leading this program, program director for this. She is from Thailand, but she has been working now across the Mekong River Commission and all of the other partners in the region. And, you know, they are coming together through a number of different networks. Ours included under SummerNet, but also other groups that they're working together. And they're beginning to see that this coordination and collaboration of work is really what is needed to make this positive change. So they're doing some fantastic work out there. That sounds really, really good. I remember one of our podcast guests earlier, Arti Kumar Rao, she talked about water knowing no boundaries, right? Yes. And this inherent desire of governments to say, you know, this is my water, it's in my country, but it doesn't really quite work like that. And then the people who get the most affected are the ones who are vulnerable to the situation, really. So it sounds like it's just amazing work being done. Can you now talk about SEI's work in connecting gender and climate change, citing examples, please? We'd also love to hear more about online course you've just started on gender and environment, which sounds like a brilliant initiative. Okay, well, thanks for that. Yes, no, we're quite excited by that as well. But the work that we're doing on gender, it is one of our core programs, as I mentioned earlier. And we try to make sure that all of our projects are viewed through the lens of gender and social equity so that we are being as inclusive as we can be and making sure that the solutions is, are equitable for everybody. But I suppose if you're looking at environmental change and the stresses, even though they're being felt by everybody, it doesn't affect everybody equally. So we know that whether it's because of your gender, your race, where you're living, your ethnicity and so forth, all of this may be, be seen as sometimes privileges that you may have, but that some don't have. And we want to make sure that we think that through in all of our programs. And we want to make sure that by working towards transformative and socially inclusive uh, sustainable development, that this leaves nobody behind. So our research really looks at this intersectional lens to make sure that we are hearing the perspectives of many, many people in this. We are making sure it's participatory in how we set up our methodologies for research so that hopefully the outcomes are, are more towards social and environmental justice for everybody. And this, this program now is with the gender team covers various different areas of research. It, it links into the work we're doing in disaster risk reduction. It links into our work on climate change, migration, agriculture, um, even into environmental defenders and human rights issues so that the needs of the gender, the needs of the marginalized, the needs of you know all the groups in society are being integrated into research. So at the moment, that's, I would say, a key approach to us. And we don't want to see kind of teams working in silos 
without integrating all of these aspects. They need to think through this from many examples. So this global program that we have on gender equality, social equity and poverty reduction, the GSEP program, it tries to understand the interconnections between gender, equity, poverty from the sustainability lens and to make sure that this transformative and sustainable development is inclusive. Um, I suppose we look at it as a just transition approach to the future as well. But you mentioned the MOOC that we have there. Yeah. One of the ideas behind that MOOC, uh, these massive online courses, we have a, um, a large program called a Strategic Collaboration Fund in which we help a number of institutions to try and develop regional dialogues on key environmental issues. And when we were working with these, part of our initial idea was to try and support them on ensuring gender equity in the forums, in the discussions. So we thought, what's a better way than developing a kind of um, progressive course online that we can add content to as we learn more? We can utilize, I suppose, the learning and the research that SEI has done over the years and continues to do with our partners to integrate it into this learning. But that everybody that we support as grantees under this program, they would have to do this training program, as it were, this online course, and show that they have some understanding of the gender issues and that they can integrate it into the program, into the agenda that we're developing for these regional dialogues. So we developed the course, and then the idea is that once they do that course, we would then follow through with support for them to try and build capacity on gender-related issues and make sure it's being embedded, not just in the one-off kind of form that they're developing, but how can this work within their own business, as it were? How can the organization take this on board? So we would try and support beyond just them doing this course to looking at mentoring for those grantees and people who are working with us. And then the idea was, well, also, why not all participants at each of these regional forums, why don't they get access to this? So just trying to figure out ways that we can share knowledge more rapidly and make sure that it's accessible, not just to the key stakeholders in our, our work because you know we, we can only talk to so many people at a given time yeah. but if people have access to this we can share this message to to so many more people so we're we're hoping and anticipating that many many people will get online and, and read this course we also have a second course working with our partners the rel wallenberg institute on human rights and the environment so again making sure people understand their rights understand how they could be integrated into their needs their desires for the future and make sure that they have appropriate um, comeback, as it were, from the governments or from their communities. So they're quite interesting programs. So I'd encourage anybody just to check online on the SEI website. You can see them there and uh, take them and please comment back to us how we can continue to improve them. It sounds amazing. No, it really does. I want to move on now to making connections between climate change and pandemic. Should we be even making these connections or Is there evidence in that sense to say that there is a connection between what's happening with the climate and a pandemic coming through? So one has to be careful to pinpoint one specific issue that's causing a problem. So in in many ways, maybe the pandemic is not directly related to climate change, but it's directly related to unsustainable environmental resource use, as it were. So I would say, while climate change is having impacts and we're seeing changing climate patterns or we're seeing different precipitation issues that's not necessarily directly related to this particular pandemic but if you look at this constant use of natural resources and deforestation that we're we're pushing into new areas for agricultural land or for other infrastructures this may be leading towards it so environmental degradation maybe more so than just purely climate change but climate change could be pushing us to look at you know new lands for agriculture or 
pushing us to unsustainable resource use. I think also we have to look at the illegal wildlife trade issue as well. Like the fact that we are consuming everything that moves is an issue and we're we're making it more and more difficult for species to survive and they're going moving, I suppose, out of their natural habitat because they're under pressure from partly climate, but partly resource use and consumption, um, they're moving out into other areas where you then may see interaction with other species which can transfer these viruses and cause such pandemics. So I think there's a kind of links there, but whether I would say it's specifically caused, no, I think I think it's a combination of issues. But we certainly do need to look at these impacts and make sure that we understand how, you know, for example, the challenges with climate change could exacerbate some of these problems. So if you're looking at the health impacts of people with COVID, you know, certainly areas around air pollution, which is a climate issue around fossil fuels, that's making it more severe for people who are affected by, at least now, the the COVID-19. So there are further issues that climate change or what has brought about climate change is having on people who who may be suffering from COVID-19 or other issues. So I think not direct, but certainly it's part of the bigger problem. And we need to look at some of these socioeconomic problems that we have, the health factors, because if we look at the risk for people with COVID-19, it increases their vulnerability as we see the impacts of climate change happen. So I would yeah, probably leave it at that, that it has impacts. It's not a direct result, but all of it combined in terms of degradation of the environment, in terms of climate change and the pressures it might be adding to resource use overall has an impact on maybe how this or other pandemics may happen in the future. Thank you for that. I want to talk about climate science now, and we know we're in the middle of a climate emergency. And I read this thing which said that, I think in one of your articles, in fact, that talks about annual flood levels in Bangkok by 2050 will cover the whole city region. And this is projected to be worse than the 2011 flood. And that killed over 650 people, impacted over 13 million people, and caused extensive damage to local and international trade for years. So how can a city cope with annual floods like this? And should cities and then governments be reacting with even more urgency with coming up with climate action plans? Yeah, short answer is yes. They should be looking at this with more <laughs> urgency. Um, some cities, as you probably have heard, are looking, Manila, I think it is, or Jakarta, also maybe at relocating in time. But I think it is very clear that sea level rise is going to cause major problems for cities in this whole region, globally, but very much around the Asian region. And we're looking at, I think I've seen figures up to 600, 700 million people uh, being affected by this in in due course because cities will be inundated. And we all know what happened in Bangkok in 2011. And yes, you're right to say that the potential flood levels are going to be as severe, if not worse than then every year with sea level rise at its current trajectory. And that is set to increase. So I think cities and governments, they need to really start looking at how they develop these climate change adaptation plans and what they can do at city level to make sure that they're also, as you mentioned earlier, being inclusive and taking into account all the people that are living in the city and the impacts it can have. There are some no regret options that they could quickly start looking at, such as nature-based solutions. And there's a lot of work being done around that uh, to see how by reintegrating nature into maybe these lowland river rhine areas that we can maybe protect flooding areas, we can re-divert rivers in the natural courses and stop blocking their flow. We can stop building on riverine areas and causing major impacts there. But these kind of nature-based solutions, they again, they don't contribute to greenhouse gas emissions. They are basically a benefit for nature that help people's health and well-being as well as protect the system. So it's important that we look at some of these areas 
um, constantly going back to concrete to build infrastructure, this only causes more of the problem. It doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't absorb CO2. It just adds to the problem that we have. So we need to look at nature in many ways for doing that. But we also need to look at enforcing the laws that are already in place. Um, there are a lot of government policies and best practice that are signed up to by cities, but not always necessarily delivered on. We see a lot of impact, uh, environmental impact assessments that have been done for major infrastructure in cities, um, not necessarily listening to what the science is saying, or indeed, you know, in many cases, there has been corruption and people have gone ahead and built in places where they probably shouldn't have. That's causing more problems for the future as well. And we've got to make sure that people begin to understand that if you have policies and procedures in place, we should follow them. And we should also start thinking 5, 10, 20 years down the line, because if you're going into large infrastructural projects today, are they going to be able to cope with the changing climate and the patterns that that will bring in, in 20 years' time? If not, you're wasting money and you're going to cause another problem. So it's important that they look long term for that. And I think in, in all the work that we're doing in cities at the moment, it's really vital that we look at the informal settlements that are in many of these cities around Asia and make sure that people who are often the most affected by the sea level rise or the impact of flooding in cities are the ones that have least ability to cope with it and least ability to to rebound from it. And they're, they're very non-resilient in many ways. So we need to make sure that this becomes a priority group to build their resilience in the big picture issue here. But I think it's clear business as usual is not appropriate. I think you see the impact that we had in Bangkok, not just to the city itself, which was horrendous, but to the global production chain for so many different industries. You know, some industries, global industries were out for six months before the flooding subsided and they were able to get back in and rebuild the industry. If we're not looking at it beyond just the city boundaries to the impact it has at the global level, there'll be a lot more problems happening as well. So again, we need to see how the responses that they may make for one city here, how they could have an impact uh, beyond the boundaries of that city. And I think that's going to be an important factor in in such decision-making moving forward. And yeah, so I'd say it's urgent. I'd say we need to really think through how we can redevelop, I suppose, cities. Maybe we can look at decentralization, you know, and some countries' governments have decentralized to different locations to take the pressure off cities and move to other regional cities. Um, could we look at ways of rezoning some industrial land away from the riverine floodplain so that the land goes back to nature-based solutions to protect the rest of the city? So I think a lot needs to be done and done quickly um, to protect it from, particularly this case of flooding, as you say, and sea level rise. How seriously do you think cities and governments are looking at the concept of climate refugees? You mentioned long-term solutions and thinking ahead. You also talked about the marginalized being the most affected. Now, to connect the both, we already know that these are people who are going to be impacted the most. So do you think this concept of being a climate refugee, that is something that's going to be even more real in the next 10 years? And then do you think governments are thinking that far ahead or is it just something that's on paper? In terms of governments thinking 10 years ahead, I think, yes, they are beginning to look at this and to see the, the, the potential impacts and to try and start to mitigate that. And I think we just have to continue to support them. Um, for me, that's a term we have to also be very careful with, climate refugees. Mm -hmm. To be able to specify whether you're a refugee because of climate can be difficult at times, and we have to be cautious of that. But there is certainly a lot of migration as a result of the impacts of climate um, in many areas, um, and we've seen the impacts of that, how it can have an impact on the areas from where people migrate 
to the areas where they migrate to. So this is going to become a bigger issue moving forward. And I think there's a lot of work that we're looking at now on the whole area around migration, what is causing it, and how we can deal with, I suppose, mass movement of people in the future. And you know, there are estimates of hundreds of millions maybe people moving in the future as a result of climate impacts, not just here in Asia, but across the, the globe, as it were. I think governments have to start taking this very seriously and start planning for that. Um, at the same time, we see that there are many countries that need to absorb, they need people to come to them because of the, I suppose, declining population growth rates and the impacts that could have. You see across Southeast Asia, there's what's called this kind of aging society where they're, as people are having fewer children and people are living longer due to great healthcare, you have a lot of older people, but not many younger people coming into the workforce. How do you sustain that? Migration may be a welcome response to some of that. So we don't always have to look at it negatively. We can look at it positively to try and support some of these aging societies and keep the workforces going. But nobody wants to move from their home because of climate degradation. So we also need to see how we can mitigate that against that in the first place. So these areas are becoming centre of many governments thinking right now. And we've got to continue to encourage that through better research and better recommendations towards governments to how they could deal with this. What role does COP need to play? Or do you think its role has been diminished in current years? Some people say it may have been diminished. I think since 2015, I think there was a, a view that they managed to achieve what they set out to do and get these Paris Agreement negotiations done. But we're not done. <laughs> we're nowhere near done. And we need to keep going mm-hmm. forward. Yeah. So I think there needs to be reinvigorated approach towards this and make sure that given that we know the information now whether it's from the IPCC report or other many many other reports biodiversity is in trouble the climate's impacting us we're not going to reach the Paris Agreement of 1.5 or even 2 degrees at a current rate so we now know we have to redouble down on this and start to really push harder on it and maybe some countries felt that they could look at the way maybe America was treating the Paris Agreement well if they're dealing with it like that we don't have to do that but I think now people are beginning to see that's not the right approach. Clearly, climate is an issue. Clearly, the COP has a potential to bring the people together, the key stakeholders, to get them on one platform and get them to discuss the critical issues and to stop delaying tactics. Because we know we don't have that much time left to really manage uh, the climate, to protect from unnecessary damage that it could cause. So I think we might be seeing, you know, hopefully now with changes, I hope, in the political setup in the U.S., Maybe if Biden comes back on board, he can reinvigorate kind of these discussions because I think he also wants to work with this uh, multilateral approach and make sure that people are coming together to find solutions, not going into kind of national lockdown mentality where you only take care of yourself and don't worry about anybody else. So I think what we're beginning to to see is, is optimism about the role opening up again of what COP can do. But we certainly really need to drive this. And I was reading some reports uh, yesterday from the UK, and I think they're under huge pressure to get down to zero emissions by 2030 and the COP can put them under pressure. So these types of meetings and having the the world leaders come together can put the pressure on to make the right choices now that people are beginning to really see the impact of climate change on the ground. What is your opinion on informed climate activism? For instance, in Thailand, are climate strikes popular? Do they hold value or do you think it's just noise? I think they do hold value. I think people here, well, Let's say people here are aware of the climate issues. So maybe these climate activists are helping people becoming aware of the issue. And you see it on the media, you see it even on ads on television here that people are, don't litter, don't dirty the environment. We need to look at 
numerous aspects of climate and we need to you know watch the our natural resources so i think people are beginning to really understand but i think that maybe over the last nine months a lot of that has shifted because the you know, COVID has taken a lot of the i suppose the messaging is changing and that the immediate needs are changing but i think we are seeing a strong push i think both by a number of thai ngos towards the environment you've got strong Greenpeace here, you've got the WWFs, and then you've got a lot of Thai Environment Institutes as well, which are pushing uh, climate. And within a lot of the universities, there's a strong push to support the climate issue or the environment issues in general. So I think it's important that we have that, and clearly it's helping the next generation. We we have some young activists here probably taking walking in the same foot as Greta sometimes, and they're leading the way to say, look, you know, we need to stand up to this. We need to look at what the issues are. We need to address this with the key decision makers and we need to make government aware. And that's important. And I think it's really good to see that happening. Um, we just need to maybe encourage more of it, but we, we need to make sure that they have the right information and that they're focusing on the right, I suppose, outcomes so that they can bring about positive change. But we could do more, I'm sure. We could encourage more of this. But in a country that's also maybe here in Thailand going through its own political issues, a lot of the youth are more engaged on the political and economic issues than the climate right now because of current conditions. But, you know, one hopes that that will pass and they can get back to, to caring for the environment and keep pushing for change that way as well. And does the media show a balanced perspective or is it very disaster-focused in that sense? Well, I don't know if I have the right knowledge to answer that because I'm not a great Thai speaker, so I, I don't get to hear the details. <laughs> but... I know there is a lot on the media that talks about mm -hmm. climate. Um, there's been a lot of, I suppose, coverage of the climate activists as well and the coverage of Greta and what she's been doing, Greta Turnbuck, around the world as well. But I think there's a lot of other homegrown issues that go on to the media here, which is quite serious. And that's always around there, and not always, but it's predominantly around flooding and the impacts of flooding and what's causing it. Is it related to a lot of the dam construction on the Mekong River? Um, so there's a lot of information about that um, on the media as well to try and encourage people to understand more. Is it climate change? Is it just dam infrastructure development that's causing these problems? We know what caused the floods here in 2011. We're not necessarily linked to climate change and you know increased rainfall. It was also linked to decision makers not opening appropriate um, floodgates and floodplains at the right time to protect their constituents. So making sure that we understand the real implications of these environmental disasters first and making sure that the right information is being shared. I think there's a lot more happening now. You know, many of the universities having regular seminars, we're doing seminars to try and encourage more learning around the environment so that the media does portray the right angle um, and not just, as you say, the sensationalism around it. Um, so I would say that it's happening, but we would like to see a lot more of it happen because I think we have to continue to, to get the right information to the communities and to the decision makers and to business so that they're making the right choices they're making informed choices thank you so much for that and now to my last question what do you think we need to do to kind of save the planet and what would your call of action be to our listeners i'm hoping your listeners already listen to the science but i would say to anybody else who's not listen to the science okay that the science knows what it's talking about there's a lot of good knowledge out there that if we put into practice today we can solve a lot of the issues that are there not all but a lot and we need to reflect upon that this whole idea of renewable energy and um, it's clear that we need to make the shift away from fossil fuels and uh, whether that's coal or oil we need to leave it in the ground as much as possible and um, difficult for some economies because 
they get a lot of their income from this. But you know, the reality is it's having too big of an impact and we need to change that. And there are ways of doing it. It is possible to have full energy from renewable resources and we need to work towards that. But we get a lot of issues here as well as that people are investing in infrastructure here, whether it's already plans for more dams or power plants or from fossil fuels. We need to encourage people to move away from that because there is this issue around stranded assets. They invest in it today, but in five years' time, we know that uh, renewable energy will be a lot cheaper. So their investments are, in a sense, stranded. They they can't be paid off properly, but those debts will be left with government and taxpayers to pay off. So if we can encourage people to look 10, 20 years down the, the line into the future, as it were, and see the potential for renewable energies to make sure that they make the right investments today in renewable energy, not in fossil fuel, it'll be a great start. But we'd also want to make sure that in trying to save the planet, we need to have a just and inclusive transition to all these new approaches. We need to make sure that we integrate gender in decision-making and make sure that people understand that all of us coming together with our insights, whether it's as a gender or LGBTQ industry or others, make sure that we have an inclusive approach to designing a future for everybody. Um, otherwise, if you have more marginalised communities, this is causing more problems in the future. Make sure that we're thinking beyond borders. Um, make sure that we're working with solutions that we know um, will it adapt to current climate or can mitigate current climate issues in our country, but that don't have negative impacts on other countries. An example here would be in as far away as we are from Senegal in West Africa, it purchases much of its rice from Thailand or from India. Mm. But when climate impacts happen there and rainfall patterns change and rice production isn't as high as normal, policies made in country are to stop exporting rice. So it means that they have rice in Thailand or India, but now Senegal can't import any rice. So it has less rice, leading to what happened is a 400% increase in cost in rice. It led to rioting on the streets in Senegal because they couldn't get access to food security. So we made a decision to solve an issue in one country, but it caused another issue in another country. How do we look at these transboundary issues and really reflect that collectively we're coming together to make decisions that benefit everybody, not just ourselves? And That's always going to be challenging, but I think we need to look at this transboundary approach. I think we need to look at I'm pushing a lot for green financing, particularly now when we're going into all these stimulus packages that we want to reboost the economy. But if we're putting all of it into fossil fuel or heavy infrastructure, we're only going to exacerbate the problem that we're trying to get away from at the moment. Um, and I've seen a report where only 4% of the stimulus packages that have been released in the last six to eight months or so are going to help reduce emissions. 4% are going to increase emissions and 92% of thereabouts is just going to be business as usual. And we've got a huge opportunity to invest all of these resources into green, renewable energy, into green jobs, into protecting the environment and reducing the threat to climate change, increasing resilience for communities. And yet we're not taking it. We're going back to business as usual. So we really need to get people to, to stop and think about how do we move forward? How do we create you know, a more sustainable future, a more prosperous future as well for all? And we can do it by putting the right plans in place. And I think for me then also a lot of it is around personal responsibility. We've got to make choices. We've got to make sure that we also don't just keep consuming at the rate that we are at the moment. You know, I saw a report the other day with global population increasing as it is to a max under 10 million by 2050. To have the same consumption patterns as the US, which most people seem to aspire to for some reason, I don't know why, but we would need three planets' resources to cater for that. And that's just not possible. We're going to have to rethink 
um, our consumption patterns. We're going to have to rethink how we bring about more circular economies to ensure that production of these commodities uses recycled material and encourages that circularity in production. We've got to put pressure on our governments to make sure that they make those decisions. They make kind of informed choices about long-term investment in environment, in circular economies, in renewable energies, in this just transition. And that's how, you know, whether through our ability to vote or to put pressure on decision makers or to learn and inform them through science um, is our responsibility for our future. And I hold this dearly because I look at the world. I've had the pleasure of being able to, to move across Africa and across Asia and see the most amazing um, landscapes and wildlife. It's just been an awesome career so far. But I wonder whether my kids will get to explore that fully or even, you know, God forbid, their kids, will they get to explore that? And if, if we're not doing something now to change our current trajectory, we're not going to give our kids or our grandkids the opportunity to see the things that we saw or to live a lifestyle that we live. We're going to make it more and more difficult. And that's our responsibility. And I think if you want to save the planet, stand up to these responsibilities and hold yourself accountable, hold governments accountable and try and force them to make the right changes for a sustainable future for all. Thank you so much, Nile. Your answers have, will make our listeners think a whole lot about what they are doing in their life and, and making the right choices. And it's been a pleasure having you on our podcast. Thank you so very much. Thank you very much indeed for having us. It's a pleasure to talk to you. 